It was the spring of 1889, and the city of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, was thriving. In the 24 years since the end of the Civil War, its population had tripled from about 10,000 to about 30,000. The only drawback uh, to its rapid growth was that it became more prone to flooding year after year. And that's because the, the, the city was kind of situated in this valley between uh, deep mountains, mountains on each side. And um, as more and more houses were built there, more dirt was moved. And the, uh, the, the river that ran through town, actually two rivers that converged, the Little Kanama and the Stony Creek, they just became narrower and narrower over time. And so almost every spring when the rains came, the riverbanks overflowed and the water spread out over the whole Johnstown Valley. And every year during the rains, neighbors would say to each other, well, today's the day the dam's going to break. They were talking about the South Fork Dam. It was 15 miles upriver and 450 feet higher in elevation than Johnstown. That dam held back 20 million tons of water and created a lake that was 70 feet deep and covered 450 acres. The dam was privately owned and poorly maintained. And over the years, uh, the owners were repeatedly warned that it was unstable. But in 1881, the local steel mill had sent experts to inspect it, and they concluded that the dam was unlikely to break. And even if it did, there was enough room for the water to spread out before it reached Johnstown, so there was really no danger. But the warnings continued year after year. Every year they were taken less and less seriously. By 1889, jokes about the dam breaking were just part of everyday small talk. Even when the heaviest rain on record began falling on the evening of May 30th and the downpour continued the next day, few people were worried. It was about 12.30 p.m. on the 31st that an urgent message came to the telegraph office in East Kanama, just a few miles upriver from Johnstown. It said, South Fork Dam is liable to break. Notify the people of Johnstown to prepare for the worst. The telegraph operator saw it and ignored it. He had heard the warnings too many times before to take it seriously. When someone else in the office read that message out loud, the others who were there laughed. A second message came at 10 minutes to 2, and this one reached the telegraph office in Johnstown. The water is running over the breast of Lake Dam in center and west side and is becoming dangerous. And then a third warning came to the Johnstown telegraph office at 2.45. The dam is becoming dangerous and may possibly go. Half an hour later at 3.15, That message was relayed to the editor of the newspaper. But by that time, the dam had already given way and a wall of water was on its way to Johnstown. One man who saw the dam break said, It seemed to me as if all the destructive elements of the Creator had been turned loose at once. The first town to be hit was South Fork, but there were only 20 structures that were destroyed there and only four lives were lost because the town was built high on the hillside and the water had not yet built up full speed. 
But just beyond South Fork, there was a bridge that was 75 feet above the normal water level. And as that wall of water hit that bridge, the debris that it carried stacked up against it, forming another temporary dam. It held long enough for the water pressure to build up, and when it collapsed, the water just exploded down that mountain gap. A mile or so beyond the bridge was a tiny town called Mineral Point. Most of the people there had recognized the danger and had evacuated, so when the water buried that town, only 12 people were killed. But every single structure was shaved right off the mountain so that when the water receded, there was no evidence that a town had ever existed in that location. Next was the town of East Kanama, which had a huge railroad station that one witness said was crushed like a toy in the hands of a giant. Twelve more people died there. By the time the water reached Woodvale, just upstream from Johnstown, it had built up so much speed and so much force that only one building in town was left standing. 250 houses were obliterated and 314 people died, one of every three residents of that town. Most of the people in Johnstown never saw the water coming. They only heard it. It sounded like thunder, only louder than any thunder they had ever heard. That wall of water was at this point 35 feet high, and it roared into that town at 40 miles per hour. Actually, the water on top was traveling faster than the water on the bottom because of the friction as it went uh, along the earth. And, and so it was really more like a tidal wave that hammered everything it hit like nails into the ground. Those who lived to describe it said it crushed houses like eggshells and threw around locomotives like so much chaff. A New York Times article said, Houses, factories, and bridges were overwhelmed in the twinkling of an eye and with their human occupants were carried in a vast chaos down the raging torrent. But the worst was still to come. Just beyond the the junction of those two rivers, there was an old stone railroad bridge. And again, all of the debris piled up. In the midst of the 45 acres of this oil-soaked mass were hundreds of people, many of them tangled in barbed wire. Then the debris caught fire. Flames spread over the whole mass. A Johnstown newspaper said it burned with all the fury of hell. Eighty people were burned to death at the bridge. In all, 2,209 people died in the Johnstown flood. Ninety-nine entire families perished. Almost 400 children died. More than 750 victims were never identified. 1,600 homes were destroyed. And four square miles of downtown Johnstown was completely wiped off the map. Later that year, a man by the name of Willis Johnson wrote a book called The History of the Johnstown Flood. In it, he said this, Ample time was given to the inhabitants of Johnstown by the railroad officials and by other gentlemen of standing and reputation. In hundreds of cases, this warning was utterly disregarded, and those who heeded it early in the day were looked upon as cowards, and many jeers were uttered by lips that now are cold. 
Now, I know that that's not a Sunday morning kind of a story. But the reason that I, I tell you this story is because my goal this morning is to help you understand what the Bible means when it says that God is slow to anger. That phrase pops up nine different times in the Bible. And typically, it's grouped with three other attributes of God, like it is in Psalm 145, 8, uh, which says the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. Is that a familiar phrase to some of you? That's, that was actually first spoken. Those words were first spoken by God himself uh, to Moses. And the quote was repeated almost word for word six different times in the Old Testament. So this is a really common way that God describes himself. But the question that I want to answer right now is, what did God mean when he said that he is slow to anger? Many people think that what it means is that God never really gets angry because he's gracious and compassionate and and rich in love. We don't need to fear his anger at all. A God that is that nice will never lose his patience with us, no matter how exasperating our behavior. And if that's what you believe about God, then you will never be genuinely alarmed by warnings of his judgment, nor will you ever fully appreciate the strength of his patience. See, nowhere does it say that in the Bible that God never gets angry. What it says, again and again, is that he is slow to anger. And and what will strike you if you read in context the verses in which that statement is made is that very often it is surrounded by verses that describe not how long it takes for God to get angry, but how terrifying his anger is when his patience runs out. One example is the passage that's in front of you right now, Nahum 1. I mean, you look at that statement in verse 3, Nahum 1, 3, where it says the Lord is slow to anger, and that just kind of warms your heart until you read the verses that come before and after it. Start reading in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Go down to verse 6. It says, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Those are not very comforting verses, are they? You see, when God says that he's slow to anger, he's not saying that he's indifferent toward our sin. What he's saying is that he doesn't get mad as quickly as we would expect him to, considering the contrast between his holiness and our sinfulness. He restrains his wrath behind a dam of patience. The strong amalgam of his graciousness and his compassion and his love hold back the waters of judgment while he gives us warning after warning that if we don't change course, one day the dam is going to break. 
And tragically, the Bible is full of stories like the Johnstown flood, in which the patience of God holds back his anger for so long that people think the dam is never going to break. And then it does, suddenly and furiously. Do you know who Nahum was writing to? He was writing to the people of Nineveh, the same city that the prophet Jonah had been sent to 150 years earlier. Way back then, a century and a half earlier, God's patience with the sinful behavior of the people in Nineveh was about to run out, but in a, in a last-ditch effort, he sent Jonah to Nineveh to warn them of what was about to happen to them. And, and Jonah preached that message. Uh, reluctantly, he, he preached it because he really wanted them to get what they had coming. But to his dismay, the people repented. And God relented. And that made Jonah complain to God. He said, that's why I didn't want to come. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Because the people of Nineveh finally heeded God's warning, he graciously withheld his judgment. But over time, they went back to their old ways. And God displayed incredible patience by warning them again and again. But they interpreted his patience as permission. And they laughed off the warnings of prophets like Nahum. Right up to the point where their city was utterly destroyed by the Babylonians and their allies. In the 2nd century AD, a Greek writer by the name of Lucian wrote this. Nineveh is so completely destroyed that it is no longer possible to say where it stood. Not a single trace of it remains. The flood of God's wrath had wiped it right off the map. And you see that same pattern in God's dealings with Egypt when Pharaoh refused to release the Israelites from slavery. Remember, God said through Moses, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no way, not going to do it. And so God, God just started to send these, these, these you know, pr- progressively worse plagues t- upon Egypt. First there was the turning of all the water of Egypt into blood. And Pharaoh said no. And then came the plague of frogs. Pharaoh said no. God turned all the dust into gnats. Pharaoh said no. Plague of flies, no. Death of all livestock, no. Plague of boils, no. Plague of hail, No. Plague of locusts? No. Three days of darkness? No. Pharaoh persisted in disobeying God. And that is when, as Psalm 78 says, the Lord unleashed against them his hot anger, wrath, indignation, and hostility. He killed every firstborn son in Egypt. But only after they had spurned his multiple warnings to obey him or else. And then when Israel occupied the promised land, they fell into that same complacency. They reveled in God's graciousness and compassion and love and they broke his laws without serious consequences for so long that when God's prophets warned of impending judgment, they persecuted them. Sometimes they even killed them just to shut them up. 
And they just continued to sin, thinking that God was either too weak or too preoccupied or just too nice to do anything about it. The northern kingdom was the most brazen, and they were the first to be hit when the dam of God's patience gave way. In 722 B.C., the nation was swallowed up by Assyria. Judah, the southern kingdom, saw it happen, but they kept right on sinning, thinking it would never happen to them. The prophet Jeremiah warned them for decades that God's patience with them was wearing thin. Through that prophet, God said, The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. From the day it was built until now, this city, Jerusalem, has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. And what did the people do? They blew Jeremiah off. And what did God do? He waited and waited and waited until 586 B.C. when suddenly the nation of Babylon came in like a flood and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and deported its citizens. Now, why am I telling you about all these terrible things that happened so long ago? Here's why. History is repeating itself today. I know that it's hard to believe, but we are living in a time when God's patience is restraining the most furious outpouring of his wrath that this world has ever seen. It's been predicted actually since hundreds of years before the time of Christ. A prophet by the name of Zephaniah began warning people about it six centuries before Jesus was even born. I want you to look at this with me. Um, it's just a little ways right from Nahum. If you take Nahum and you go right from there, you're going to go through uh, Habakkuk. Did I say that right? Until you get to uh, Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah 1. Now brace yourself and start reading about the future in verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end to all who live on the earth. Wow. One of the most surprising details that you will find in many of the Bible's predictions about the day of God's wrath is that it is coming soon. Did you notice that in verse 14? The great day of the Lord is near, near, and coming quickly. And we say, wait a minute, that was written in 600 B.C. What's taken God so long? 
That was probably the question that people were asking during the six centuries between the time this prophecy was spoken and the day that Jesus showed up. See, that's when God's judgment was expected to be unleashed. Because the prophets had been saying that the Messiah was the one who would execute God's wrath. In fact, one of the reasons why some people think that Jesus wasn't the Messiah is because he didn't do that. Instead, he did what no one could have predicted. He he absorbed God's wrath. This is where the Bible takes a shocking twist. Nobody knew that, that when the Messiah came, his graciousness, his compassion, and his love would be so great that he would stand in our place and he would allow all of God's anger, all of God's fury for all of the sins committed up to that time and since that time to come crashing down on him so that it wouldn't hit us. That's exactly what happened on the cross. You go, what, what was that about when, when, when Jesus died on a cross? Why is that such a big deal? It's such a big deal because that was where the wrath of God was concentrated All of God's anger for all sin of all time put in one concentrated dose upon his son, Jesus. And and the good news that the Bible shares with us is that everyone who turns from their sin and believes in Messiah Jesus is rescued from God's wrath that will never experience it. But the bad news is that God's wrath is still going to come upon those who do not accept the grace extended to us through Christ. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son, that is, in Jesus, has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So you see, the day of the Lord that Zephaniah described is still going to come. The warning that has been sounded ever since Jesus went back to heaven is that he is coming again, only this time not to absorb God's wrath, but to execute it. And that warning comes to us again and again in the Bible, saying that it's going to happen soon and suddenly. The Apostle Paul said the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly and they will not escape. The Apostle Peter said the end of all things is near. The Apostle James said the judge is standing at the door. The Apostle John said this is the last hour. And when the Spirit of Jesus gave John a revelation of the indescribable horror of Christ's second coming for those who do not believe. His last words to John, in fact, his last words to us in the second to last verse of the Bible are these. I am coming soon. Wait a minute. That was 2,000 years ago. Where is this coming he promised? Well, that very question is asked and answered in 2 Peter chapter 3, 
Would you look at this passage with me? It's the last one we're going to look at, but you're going to need to turn in your Bible over to page 854, way back toward the end of the New Testament, end of your Bible. 2 Peter 3. And I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the flood that killed every living being on this planet except for those who took refuge in Noah's ark. Verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is what? He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So what is it that's held back God's, God's wrath for so long? His patience has been holding it back. He's slow to anger. He's so gracious. He's so compassionate. He is so loving that even as the floodwaters of righteous judgment press against that dam with incredible force... The strength of his patience is holding it back. See, God, right now, God is looking down at this world, at this nation, at this state, at this region. He sees Falmouth and Yarmouth and Freeport and Gray and North Yarmouth and Cumberland He even sees into this room that we are in right now. And he sees people who have not yet taken refuge in Christ. And he is waiting patiently for them to do that. And he has been waiting so long that some of us think a day of judgment is never going to come. But it is. The dam will give way. The flood will come. And when it does, nobody will be able to say, but I wasn't warned. Nobody will be able to charge God with impatience. If he has proved anything in these last 2,000 years, it is that he is slow to anger. So what's the appropriate response to God's patience? Well, it all depends on where your heart is. If you're not yet a Christian, 
If there has never been a time in your life when you have actually taken refuge in Jesus where you say, I'm coming to you to protect me from the wrath of God. I'm no longer going to stand exposed by my own human efforts at trying to please God. Instead, I'm going to trust in what you have done for me on the cross and I'm going to entirely put my faith in you to protect me, to forgive me. If you've never done that before, then the only sensible thing for you to do sooner rather than later, is to repent. That's a word in the Bible that that means to make a U-turn. You've been going away from God. Now turn around back toward God. Put your faith in Christ. Romans 2 warns us not to show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. It says that God's kindness is intended to lead us toward repentance. And that if we remain stubborn and unrepentant, we store up wrath for ourselves for the day of God's wrath. You don't want to do that. Don't test God's patience. If you're a Christian... If there's been a time in your life when you have made that decision to repent and, and to take refuge in Jesus, then obviously our, our first response is, is gratitude, right? And aren't you glad that God's patience didn't run out before you became a Christian? Aren't you glad that he was slow to anger when you were slow to repentance? And aren't you glad that you now live with the security of knowing that Jesus has rescued you from the wrath to come, that you are not appointed to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. And, and don't you want others to experience that same grace? Of course you do. That's why we need to respond to this truth about God's patience, not just with gratitude, but also with boldness. We have to warn people that we love about the flood that's coming. And urge them to take refuge in in Jesus Christ. I guess I would say that uh, what I'm most concerned about today is people who have a very sensitive conscience. People whose heart's desire is to obey God. And when they fail, their repentance is genuine. And yet... I may be describing you, you're still terrified of God's anger. What you have to understand is that God's feelings toward you are completely related to your attitude toward him. Yes, his anger does burn against those who disregard him, but his heart is filled with affection toward those who fear him. So if you are poor in spirit, if you mourn your sin, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the Lord is not angry with you. He is delighted with you. Really, that's what, we, that's what we celebrate when we take communion together. We, we celebrate the fact that God's anger toward us was poured out on his son instead of us. We eat bread that represents the body of Jesus that literally died in a flood of God's wrath. We drink juice that symbolizes real blood that he shed in order to save us. So if you've put your faith in Christ, uh, we're going to invite you in just a minute to join in this memorial meal, this time of remembering uh, the way that God showed his love for us. And 
I'm going to just give you a little bit of instruction about how to do this. Um, I'm going to ask you to come down this center aisle. So if you happen to be on one of the side sections, just go to the back and come down the center aisle. And then you can go on either side of the table. Take a piece of bread. There's gluten-free bread if you need that. Take a, a little cup of juice. You can bring it back to your seat, and you can eat and drink anytime you're ready to do that. Anytime you, you're, where you feel like you're really remembering what Jesus um, has done for you. And if you're not yet a Christian, and that, if that's true, first of all, you need to know that everybody that's here has been where you are. That's, we all start out that way. We're not born Christians. We have to make a decision to put our trust in Christ. And if you haven't done that yet, then the scriptures say that this is not really for you. This is a time for you to observe what those who do follow Jesus are doing and to think about what it represents, to think about what Christ has done for you. So please, just feel free to stay in your seat. It's totally okay if you do that. And, um, and I, we just hope that you'll take the time to think about, about your relationship with God. Okay? After I'm done praying, I want you just to feel free to come forward anytime you're ready to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that um, you were patient enough with this world to wait until Jesus came to pour out your wrath. And thank you that you were patient enough with us to wait for us to cling to Jesus before executing your final judgment. We pray for those that we love who do not yet trust in Jesus. Oh, God, please wait a little longer and give them the grace to believe. And this morning, accept our gratitude for your grace to us as we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.